If you've not met me before, as Jeff said, my name is Jack, and I am one of the youth leaders for our Fusion and Infusion youth group. Guys, we practiced this last week. That was, that was just awful. Let's try again. My name's Jack, if you don't know. I'm one of the Fusion and Infusion youth leaders. Better, better, completely unprompted. Um, And it is my job to unpack part of the Bible this morning. So if you uh, have a Bible, now's the time to turn to uh, a book called 1 John chapter 3. That's not the book of John. This is the book of 1 John. It's a little bit smaller and it's further to the back of your Bibles. If you haven't got a Bible but you'd like to follow along, just stick your hand nice and high in the air and some very nice person will bring you a Bible. And if you have one of our church red Bibles... Oh, and the kids can go out now if they want to, apparently. Um, (laughs) That hurt. Anyway, moving swiftly on. If you have one of our church red Bibles, then uh, it's on page 1226. Page 1226, and we're looking at John. 1 John, sorry, chapter 3. Um, And before we get into that, I'm just going to pray. Father, I thank you that we can can come together this morning and we can can enjoy a time together of singing and worshipping you, of watching these wonderful children depicting the story of, of you sending your son to earth. And I pray, Father, that you would use this time to reveal more of you to us. I pray that you'd help me as I've got a lot going on in my mind. I pray that you would just help me speak clearly and speak for you. Jesus, this is your time. Use it as you will. Amen. Amen. Now before we really delve into uh, our passage of the Bible this morning, I want to tell you about my mate Dan. Okay, Uh, This is a picture of my mate Dan. Should come up. There you go. That's my mate Dan. And um, he was a really good friend of mine when we were at uh, school and college. He was on the rugby team with me. And we were great friends. And uh, we caught up earlier in the year over the summer. uh, Because at that point I had not seen him for well over a year. Because he'd been really busy with work. Uh, Would anybody like to hazard a guess as to what Dan's job would be? He's not a golfer. No. It's surprising. Maybe another photo might help. That's a photo from college. No, he's not Superman. Um, okay, maybe one more photo might help. That is Dan. He's in the army. My friend Dan is in the army. And I've got another photo of him. There we go. And Dan, uh, when I caught up with him in the summer, we, I hadn't seen him for well over a year, and a whole bunch of us caught up, and we saw how he's getting on. And when we saw him in the summer, he had just finished his paratrooper training, okay, which uh, involved him doing some training called Halo Survival. And Halo Survival stands for High Altitude Low Opening, okay, and. Uh, and it's, it's basically your standard skydiving, okay? But he had some all kinds of other cool training that he had to do along with it. And he decided to show us a short video clip that he had of sort of a montage of him learning to skydive on this Halo survival training. And so 
me and my friends, we all gathered around his laptop as he showed us this video clip. And he was explaining to us that on Halo training day, day one is sort of classroom-based. They give you all the basics, they give you the theory, they tell you what to expect. But then day two, they're shoving people out of planes. And uh, he's showing us this video clip, and quite frankly, initially, it is hilarious, because these guys don't really know what they're doing. And I'm not joking, this, this first guy on the video clip, he got pushed out of the plane, and most of us would realise, you, you kind of want to fan out and go horizontal. I'm not joking, he ran out of the plane, and he was just running on the spot. <laughs> and you could, you could see the arm of the instructor kind of going, lean, lean. Now, everybody else who did it kind of got the idea a bit quicker, but they still looked funny because they'd do things like leave their mouths open and just be flapping all over the place and sort of panic in their eyes. But um, after each successive jump, these guys would learn a new technique. Okay? So on jump two, they're, they're, they're sort of m- learning how to move with more precise, exact movements. And jump number three, they're learning how to lose control and gain it back in just under five seconds. And each jump we saw, it got less and less funny and more and more impressive. Until we got to the last jump, where suddenly my mate Dan and all his army friends, they're jumping out of this plane and it's not funny at all. Because you see them there, and it suddenly hits you. As they're jumping out of this plane with a glare of determination in their eyes, dressed head to toe in camouflage, blacks and greens, and with a gun strapped to their chest, you're just smacked right in the face with, hang on, this isn't just a bunch of guys having a fun jumping out of planes. These guys are warriors. And they're going to be inserted into enemy territory. When they're jumping out of those planes, they've got one purpose in mind. To land behind enemy lines, to set free those who are captive, and fight against those who oppress them. And when I saw that in the height of summer, gathered round my friend's laptop, one thing came to mind. Christmas. Christmas. I don't know about you, but it's about this time of year that um, all kinds of questions are flying around. I've had them um, sort of while having my hair cut just yesterday with the barber um, at work Christmas do and around the office. People start talking about what are you doing for Christmas? And then this inevitable question comes up. What does Christmas mean to you? And there are all kinds of answers that you can give to that. And some people answer with, it's about family, which I just get to spend time with my family and it's great. Other people go, it's about family. I have to spend time with my family and there's an argument. Other people say, it's about love and it, it, it's, it's about friends. And if maybe if you get a child, they'll go, it's about presents. And maybe you'll get a nice Christian guy who'll go, do you know what, Christmas? It's about Jesus. But can I give you a one-word biblical answer to when that question comes up? So when you're at the office Christmas party, when you're at school, when you're hanging out with some friends and someone says to you, so what does Christmas mean to you? This is the one-word biblical answer I would use. Destruction. Destruction. When I think of Christian, uh, Christmas, I think of destruction. 
Why is that? Well, it's because the Bible tells me in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. And the second half of that verse says this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. When Jesus came to earth, he came to destroy something. When Jesus arrived on this planet, it was because God wanted something destroyed. When we see the cute little nativity scene that we've just seen this morning, that is depicting something being destroyed. Now, some of you may be sitting here thinking, Jesus, he came to destroy? What? Surely, surely Jesus came to, uh, to, to save us, to bring peace, to heal us. But yes, but think about it just for a moment. Because if we needed saving, that must mean that there was a time where we were held captive as prisoners. If we need peace, that means there has to be a state of of havoc, chaos, and war. If we need healing, that must mean that there is a sickness which needs eradicating and cut out. When Jesus came to bring freedom, peace, and healing, there needed to be destruction. So this brings two questions which we're going to look at this morning. The first is, what did Jesus come to destroy And the second is, how did he do it? What did Jesus come to destroy and how did he do it? So the first question, what did he destroy? 1 John chapter 3 verse 8 tells us, The Son of God appeared to destroy the devil's work. Now some of you might be going, the devil? Really? I mean, come on, haven't we moved beyond that? I mean, we're smarter than believing in a little guy who's red with horns, a pitchfork and ram's legs, aren't we? We've moved beyond that. Well, a guy called C.S. Lewis, he's the guy who wrote the the Narnia stories, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and the like. Um, He said this, One thing that really surprised me when I read the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit that was held to be the power over death, disease, and sin. And then he ends all this by saying, Christianity agrees, while looking at the universe around us, that it's at war. And if you're sitting here, you're thinking, I'm not sure I can get on board with that, Jack. Our cosmic battle over the universe, you know, good versus evil. Sorry, mate, I just, I just can't buy it then I would say to you, you need to come up with a reason as to why something so amazing and beautiful as humanity can do some of the horrific things that we do. How do you explain Somalia, where there's 300,000 people killed through starvation tactics as a weapon by warlords? Well, That's an education issue, isn't it? They don't have very many schools in Africa. Okay, then how do you explain 1.5 million people killed in Nazi Germany, which at its time was one of the most educated nations on the planet? Well, Jack, we've moved on from them. 
Okay, then how do you, how do you explain 170 million people killed by their own governments within the last century? How do, you ex- how do you reconcile when you pick up a newspaper and you read the headlines about people being shot in America and all the other disasters of horrific things that human beings do to one another? The Bible looks at all of that and it says it's warfare. And there is someone behind it. And he's called the devil. That just means accuser. He's called Satan. That simply means enemy. And Jesus came to destroy his work. What was his work? 1 John tells us at the start of verse 8. It says, He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So his work is to, is to sin. Success for the devil is to get us to participate in this thing called sin. What is sin? 1 John tells us in verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Now, that's not the law like the one the police enforce. If you're driving along the road, there's a speed limit. And if you break the speed limit, the police catch you. You get a fine and, and of 80 pounds and three points in your license. That's not the law that he's talking about here. What he's saying in this, in this book of the Bible is that God, who made up all things, he set up a way for the universe to work and to run. But God has an enemy. And an enemy who comes to us and says, hey, I know God wants it to go this way, but you should go this way instead. And the devil has been doing that from the very start. And you can see that at the very beginning of the Bible. Because in Genesis and around chapters 2 and 3, there's this this garden that's described. And in it is this man and this woman. And they're having a great life. And they have this offer of fellowship, friendship, and a relationship with God himself. And then the devil comes in. And he turns up. And he says to them, hey, look, if you want to enjoy life, don't chase after a relationship, a friendship with him. No, go after his stuff. Don't, Don't chase after him. Go after the things he's made. Chase after your own power, your own popularity. Get yourself a packed out Facebook page. Get yourself a good job. That's what you want to have a happy life. The devil, the work of the devil is to take God's way, his way, and say, don't follow his rule. Don't do that. Instead, make your own rules Instead, go after your own things. So what happens is we take life and we we go, I know God wants me to live it this way, but I don't want to. I don't feel like it. I want to do things this way. Because God doesn't really know how things are playing out in 2012. What What I've got to go through in the coming year. I want to do things my own way. And it's... It's that diversion between God and humanity, which the devil's put in, that the Bible describes as the plague of humanity. It's like going to a well to drink and then just drinking sand and then wondering why you're still thirsty. 
A book in the Old Testament called Isaiah would put it this way. Your sins have hidden his face from you and he cannot hear you. That's why humanity lies awake at night with that longing, that ache and that void which it's trying to fill. Have you ever felt like that? Did you know that right now, at this moment in time, we have more free time and more gadgets than any other generation that we know of? And yet people still feel empty. Why is that? It's because we've been led astray to go after the wrong things in life. The work of the devil has touched us all and it's taken us to a very dark place. And if we'd been left there, that would be a real bummer. It would be a real bummer. But that's not where the story ends. Because God in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, he gives an answer to this problem. And what I love about this bit of the Bible is it's not just a list of rules. God doesn't say, you messed up, you walked away, you left me. Therefore, for you to come back in, here's an eightfold path to make up for it. Here's five pillars for you to attain to so that you can get into heaven. Here's ten commandments, and if you do them, I might let you back in. No, that's not what God does. Instead, in Genesis chapter 3, he sees that mankind has walked away from God and gone astray. And what he does is he turns to the devil and he says this, I will put enmity, strife, hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Then he decides to use a, a, to put it technically, a single masculine pronoun. He uses the word he, meaning this boy, this offspring of a woman, this child, he says, will crush your head. As you strike his heel. The God who sees humanity has gone astray. He doesn't turn around and say, do this list to make up for it. No. Instead, he looks at the devil. He says, I'm going to send a boy and he's going to kick your butt. He's going to kick your butt. That's my solution. That's what I'm going to do. So what did Jesus come to destroy? The work of the devil. That separation between God and mankind. So our second question. How did he do it? How did he do it? Jesus destroyed the works of the devil by appearing on earth. When Jesus arrived, it was a landed invasion. He was inserted behind enemy lines. That's why when Jesus is born, you get the cheer of the angels in Luke's gospel. Yay, Jesus is born. But then you get the slaughter of babies in Matthew. Because when Jesus came, don't get caught up in the cute little baby in a manger, isn't it? Nice and sweet. Don't get caught up by the fluffy animals surrounding him and the wise men with the presents. That's all good. That's all nice. But when Jesus arrived, it was a landed invasion. And the enemy, the devil, he knew about it. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, it's an all-out brawl that takes place. 
That's why when Jesus uh, grows up and he starts his ministry, he, uh, he goes out and he kicks it off by getting baptized in water. And then he goes out into the wilderness. And who does he meet out there? The devil. He meets the devil. And the devil uh, is there and he's trying to get Jesus off course from what he came to do. He goes, he goes hey man, you look, you look hungry. You should eat something. Well, what, there's no food about? Turn those rocks into bread. Go on, you can do it. And he tries to get Jesus to use his powers inappropriately. And that doesn't work, so he decides to give Jesus some PR advice. Hey, why don't you just show off a little bit? Show who you really are as the Son of God. And Jesus doesn't do that, so he tries one more thing. And he goes to Jesus, and he finally looks at him, and he says, I will give you all of creation if you just stop what you've come here to do. Satan offers him everything if he would just stop what he arrived to do. What an offer. He's never offered us a deal like that. Has he offered it to you? I mean, the best the devil offers us is like, hey, maybe you should get drunk because then you'll feel good for an hour. And we're like, I like feeling good. And then the next day you feel like a train wreck. Or maybe, maybe, hey, you should throw up after a meal because then you'll be thin. And you go, I want to be thin. And it just, that, it's this weird little package that he gives us. Of you'll feel good for a moment, but then it's just horrible. And that's like the best he gives us. But he looks at Jesus and he goes, everything, just stop what you're here to do. And do you know what Jesus' response was? No thanks. And then he storms off into the town of Nazareth. And he goes into a synagogue, the Jewish place of worship, and he pulls out a scroll of an Old Testament prophet called Isaiah. And he reads it out. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And we all hear that and go, Yay, he likes poor people. But then he continues and he says, He has sent me to proclaim freedom to prisoners and to release the oppressed. And he ends it all off by rolling up the scroll, putting it down. And looking into the people who are watching him read this. And he says, this is being fulfilled now in me. And then he goes away to wreak havoc on the kingdom of his enemy. And one of my favorite moments in the life of Jesus is when he's, he's there and uh, someone comes up to him and goes, hey, Jesus, could you just explain kind of what you're doing here on how this is working out? And um, if you're a Christian, you're a member at King's Church, you can try this one because Jesus decides to uh, explain what he's here to do by telling a story. So you can explain when next time someone asks you about Jesus, you can explain it by telling a story. And Jesus tells this story. He looks at the crowd and he says, um, Picture a strong man with lots of stuff. Now picture a stronger man coming along, beating him up, taking his stuff, and stripping him naked. That's kind of what I'm doing. Maybe give that one a go next time if you're a member of King's Church. Someone says, what, what, what does your church believe in? What's this Jesus all about? You could go, eh, well, it's about a picture of a strong guy, and he beats that guy up and takes his stuff. That's what Jesus is like. Hallelujah, would you like to join my church? Luke 11, verse 21. Jesus says, When a strong man is fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. 
But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor which that man had trusted in and he divides up his plunder. That's what Jesus came to do to the devil. That's why in the Bible, when Jesus turns up, there are like these guys called demons that just kick off. They scream. Girls, when you turn up to a room, uh, the most you get to screaming is when a girl goes, Ooh, have you had your hair cut? But when Jesus turns up, these demons go, Ah! There's this one time where Jesus walks in and they go, Oh no! Jesus, have you come to destroy us before the appointed time? Which is hilarious. It's like they knew a butt kicking was coming, but they're like, Oh, I thought it was Thursday. Oh no! Because the stronger one had come. Is Jesus the bringer of peace? Yes. But it's peace brought about by greater firepower. So Jesus steps onto the scene and he says, I'm going to do something to set captives free. And then in John chapter 16, he says, the ruler of this world, that guy, the devil, Satan himself, he's going to be judged. He's going to be judged. Then Jesus went and he hung on a cross and died. Colossians chapter 2 says it this way. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, when you were far off, when you were distant from God, when the devil's work had taken place and you did not know him, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal debt, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now I've seen that, that verse from the Bible set to cheesy Christian music on a dodgy YouTube video. And the picture they always use is a picture of a wooden cross with a piece of paper nailed to it. And on that piece of paper is just a list of wrong things, of sins. But let me tell you, that paper was not what got nailed to a cross. He did. Corinthians puts it this way. He who knew no sin, Jesus, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It wasn't a list of the things that you've done wrong put on that tree. That list was put on him. And then he was the one who got stapled to a piece of wood, hung there and died. And when he did that, he did it for a purpose. Colossians 2.15 goes on. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. The perfect son of God tasted death so that we wouldn't have to experience that separation from God. So that we could have that work of the devil uh, destroyed and we could come to know our creator. And Jesus didn't stay dead. He made a spectacle of his enemies By doing that very thing, taking every last bit of sin upon himself, dying for it, and then not staying dead. When he rose from the dead, he made fools of the enemy, triumphing over them. 
And the interesting thing is that uh, in the time of the Bible, that word triumph was an event. It was a specific thing that everyone would have known about. Because back in those days, if you were a king and you went to war against an enemy king, then uh, you would battle. And if you were victorious over him, then what you would do is you would ride back into your town for everyone to celebrate you and your victory. And so as you head home, you would send a messenger ahead to send the good news. And then what they would do is they would line the streets. Your friends and family would gather and then they would come to watch this parade. So before you ride into your town, you'd stop beforehand. You'd get all the blood and guts and gore off of you. You'd change into your best outfit and you'd get onto a white horse. And then you'd ride into town. Either on the horse or being pulled on a chariot behind it. And you would ride into this town lined with people either side while everyone around celebrates the fact that you beat up this opposing king. And typically, being dragged along behind you would be the leader of the enemy. And he wouldn't be there uh, dressed in fine clothes. He'd be stripped completely naked because outside of magazines, people who are naked look really funny. So it would kind of be that as you go along, they would see you and they would marvel at your majesty and your glory and how great you are. Yes, that's our king who's won victory. Then they'd see the enemy. Ha, look at him. And that's the process that would go through in this triumph. But then behind the person that you triumphed over would be the people you liberated, that you set free. And they'd be dressed head to toe in white, carrying incense, walking behind their king who saved them. And they would swing incense so that as they go through this town, it would be filled with the fragrance of the king's victory. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. Thanks be to God who leads those of us who are in Christ following Jesus out and into freedom and then he manifests in us the sweet fragrance of knowing him in every place we go. When Jesus appeared on earth, it was to destroy the work of the devil, to take a people held captive, set them free so that they can ride with him. Do you know that, Jesus? Is that what you're celebrating this Christmas? I'm going to end in prayer. Father, I thank you. I thank you that Jesus' birth that we celebrate this Christmas was a landed invasion to save us from the enemy of sin, Satan, and separation from you. I thank you that because of his work, we can know you intimately and personally. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here that they would know you deeper. I pray for people who don't yet know you And I pray that they would come to know the true meaning of this Christmas. Jesus, in your name.
Amen.